Michigan-Ohio State moving back to Ann Arbor this year. Final regular season game per usual. And Michigan's record against Ohio State widely discussed, especially lately with that seven-game losing streak. One win in the last uh, 15 years against them. And the biggie right now that everybody talks about is Harbaugh 0-4 versus Ohio State, especially after last year's blowout loss. And that got me wondering what other coaches couldn't beat their rival. And by saying couldn't beat, I mean not like never beat. But maybe they started like 0-3, 0-4 versus their rival before winning, or even like 1-4, 1-5 in their first five, six meetings. And I'm going to put together a full list of those coaches that fit in that bucket over college football history. But right now, while I was looking through coaches and records of rivalries last week, I was going through Florida State-Miami, Going through Miami's coaches, Jimmy Johnson, uh, Dennis Erickson, Larry Coker, Butch Davis, uh, those bigger ones. Then you have somebody like Al Golden, which it seems like forever ago that he was head coach down in Coral Gables. And then I got into Al Golden's career a little sidebar when I was doing that. Uh, jumped around his career a little bit, and he, I didn't know this, not sure how I ever missed this, maybe I just didn't care at the time, but Al Golden is in his fourth season with the Lions. He's their linebackers coach. Al Golden is the Lions linebackers coach. I had no idea. I thought he took the year off that first year after getting fired in 2016. I thought he took that year off. I just assumed he was somewhere else. But he stayed in the game right away. Went to Detroit. Then he was retained by Matt Patricia in his fourth season. I had no idea. So that's my random nugget for today. Andrew Doughty here on the High Motor Podcast. Thanks to everyone who tuned into the last episode with Mike Leach. Uh, last few episodes, really uh, great numbers. Mike Leach, Todd Graham was on recently. And then this week, another great guest. I talked to Dean Blandino last week, uh, ran through his career, his role in the replay system, and then discussed some some current topics like the pass interference replay. Uh, I also asked him which non-revealable plays he could see being revealable soon. A lot of good stuff from Dean Blandino. Thanks for dropping by the High Motor Podcast. Let's fire it up. A big thank you to Dean Blandino for joining the show this week. Dean, we're coming up on the start of college football season, NFL season here, but what does your off season look like? I know you're you're flying out right now to Phoenix, I think you said before the call. What are you doing kind of from like February until August? Yeah, so so the off season is, is a lot of a lot of travel because I work with the NCAA as the, the national coordinator of replay. And so I go to a lot of college clinics. I work with a lot of different college conferences, their replay officials, training, teaching. Uh, I'm a part of the, the NCA competition committee meetings. And so I'll go to those and, uh, and be a part of that process. And, uh, and yeah, and then really just, just getting ready for the NFL season, staying up to date on the rules changes, talking to people around the league and just, and just keeping a pulse on, on what's going on. So that's pretty much what my off season uh, looks like really quickly I want to talk about your career here in a little bit but regarding that piece you said with the NCA when you go to these different I know you said you were in Dallas for Big 12 and then going to Phoenix for Pac-12 when you go to these different conferences do you see that each conference kind of has a different way of doing things in terms of of organizing training their officials or is it generally um, the same process for all conferences yeah you know it's it's gotten a lot better it's 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 become more consistent I think Probably 10, 15 years ago, there was there was definitely significant differences in terms of training and resources and and what was being taught. And I think in recent years, it's it's gotten a lot more consistent. I think my role, where I see myself on the replay side, is just trying to 
to create greater consistency as it pertains to the replay process. So, you know, I'll be, I'll be with the PAC 12 replay officials tomorrow in Phoenix. I was with the big 12 yesterday and, and basically the same message going through similar plays, going through the same process and do that with the big 10 officials and the sec, just so everybody's kind of on the same page uh, when we get to uh, the start of the season. So like I said, I want to jump into your career here. And unless I'm mistaken, your career was really kickstarted after college when you joined the NFL intern back in the uh, early mid-90s there. What were you doing during that first year? I guess, what was it like being an intern in the NFL officiating office? I think it was like 1994, 1995. What was that like for that first year? Yeah, my I, I graduated from college and then started as an intern in officiating for the 94 season. And, uh, it was, it was definitely, it was a great learning experience. I didn't know anything about officiating. It wasn't something that I was, um, exposed to or really interested in, but I, but I love football. I played football, wanted to stay involved in the game. And, and, uh, and so as an intern at that time, I was doing whatever I could to, to help out. I was, I was basically editing video for the officials and that was that was one of my primary responsibilities so when there was a clinic or training tapes we would cut the tape and put the plays together and back then it wasn't digital so you had to you had to actually play play the video on one tape deck and then record it to another so you actually watched it and that's how I learned officiating um you know watching pass interference tapes and watching offensive holding tapes and and so and then I was exposed to some great people Art McNally and and Jerry Seaman and some others that uh, that taught me a lot about officiating. It was just uh, it was a real learning experience for me. So because of that that technology difference back then of actually cutting the tape, do you find it? I assume you do, but I'm kind of curious the process you're thinking behind it. Do you find it different and trying to um, more difficult to get consistency back then when it was so laborsome just to chop up a couple of plays, whereas now? with the click of the button. Like I had Mike Leach on the show last week and he talked about his early recruiting days. It was so hard just to chase down film and it would take hours or days just to find three or four plays from a certain kid. Now you have a click of the button, you can get 50 plays in 50 minutes. So back then, 25 years ago, do you find it difficult uh, to get that consistency with actually creating a rule or enforcing a rule because it was so hard to put together X number of plays over X number of time? Uh, No question. It, It was so labor intensive at that time that what would take what would take 20 minutes today would take several hours back then and uh and i remember going to competition committee meetings and the amount of hours that we would spend just putting those materials together you you only then you can only discuss a limited number of of items whereas today with everything's digital and you have it access at your fingertips it makes it so much easier easier to discuss rules and, and make rules changes and also train and teach officials and i always say that the training the, the officials today are so much better than where they were 20 years ago, but the scrutiny is so much greater. And, uh, and so it's kind of that, that, you know, both sides you, you see where we are, we're actually better than we were, but, but people don't think so because it's, it's the, uh, the microscope is so much greater. So in terms of the scrutiny, um, you know, how was the officiating office viewed back then, back in, I mean, however long you want to go, let's just say mid to late 90s, how was that officiating office viewed back then versus how it's viewed now? Yeah, you know, it was more, when I when I first got involved in officiating, officiating was not in the, it wasn't in the public spectrum. It wasn't, yeah, if something came up and it was controversial, obviously people talked about it, but you didn't have the platforms that you have today. There wasn't social media. Uh, the the 24-hour 
sports news cycle really wasn't the case at that point. And, uh, and so it was kind of just officials were the best officiated games. You didn't talk about it. It was kind of on the side and it wasn't a story. And, uh, and I think the NFL, the NFL wanted it that way. Uh, whereas today officiating, it doesn't matter what sport it is. It, it at some point, it's always going to become the story because people have, people have the vehicles now to, to, to talk about it and, and share on social media and, and the internet and everything else. So it's, uh, it's definitely been, a, uh, a significant change and it's, it's created, um, it's created a, a you know, a, a much harder environment for officials to be successful today. What were those years like leading up to? So you joined, I think you said 1994, and those five years up until the, the current replay system was, was introduced, which you led. What were those? I know that you've written about it, like you wrote an article on The Athletic, I think, like last December or November, kind of talking about the voting and the process. Of, what was the, the feeling like in the officiating office and across the league over those two or three years before that current system was actually introduced? I think it was 99, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. 99, yeah. 99, it came back. And I think during that time, we, we were tracking, even as, as early, you know, even before I, I started, the officiating department was tracking calls that could potentially go to review because they had a replay system from 86 to 91 and then and then it was it was voted out so uh from 92 to 98 there was no replay and during that time we were tracking calls tracking officials mistakes that would be fixed via replay and so we were always prepared for those conversations that would come up every off season with the competition committee and then it kind of really hit ahead in 1998 there was just some controversial calls um, some some mistakes that that were made on the field and and not through no fault of the officials it just happens quickly and it, it's a fast game and and the human eye can only see things um, you know to to a certain extent and uh, you know you had the the Vinny Testaverde play the Jets versus the Seahawks you had another play Buffalo New England on a fourth down pass that was ruled complete that was incomplete that would have that would have impacted the outcome of the game and I think that's where it came to a head and the competition committee finally decided they were going to put a proposal together and that's when I became heavily involved in that in that whole process putting that that rule in place for 1999. You said you were tracking it for those whatever number of years before it actually went into place. How many and I don't even know if you remember this but ballpark how many calls did you did you guys see that were wrong in a game on average? I mean was it several calls in a game was it just one or two that you tracked and said these would probably be differently if we had a challenge system? So yes yeah, so when we were looking at at the number of calls, it was it was le- definitely less than one per game. And you look at the number of mistakes that are made, and this has been fairly consistent over my time in officiating. Is you know, there's roughly 155, 156 plays in an NFL game. You have you have multiple decisions by seven different officials on every play, so you've got thousands of decisions that are made. And and typically, you'll see four to five mistakes made each game, and and maybe. Maybe one of those would pertain to replay where it would be a catch, no catch situation or a fumble. And, uh, and so for the season during that time, we probably, we probably had a, a hundred plays that we felt would have been impacted by replay. And, uh, and obviously when you start talking about scoring plays, touchdowns, things like that, turnovers, those are, those are impactful. And, and the, the competition committee and then the, the, the owners, finally felt um, compelled to uh, to pass the rule in 99, and we've had it ever since. Do you feel like there were there were one or multiple owners or other stakeholders within the league that were really driving that push, and they were the difference makers and actually getting that vote passed? 
There were there were definitely there were definitely people whether they were um, GMs or league office personnel or or owners that were that were pro replay and uh, you know they were even going back to the 80s and Don Shula this which was before my time but I had heard stories you know Don was was pro replay but then you had others like Mike Brown who's still you know with the Bengals who's still anti replay and uh, and so there were there was definitely a a spirited debate but but i think ultimately the ultimate driver was the technology and uh when the technology got to a point where you could review plays quickly and seamlessly and not delay the game unnecessarily i think that's where everyone felt if we have this technology which we didn't have in the previous system i think we have to use it because eventually the fan at home or, or wherever they're watching the game is going to have that ability to see that, that it was a mistake and we don't have any recourse um, to, uh, to fix it in the officiating space. What were the logistics of those early days? Were you still using VCRs back in 1999? No, no, and that was the key. So the, so the old system, and again, that was before I started, but in 86 to 91, it was two VCRs, and they were just recording the feed of the game, and when you wanted to look at a play, you stopped one VCR and you ran it back, and the other one continued to record. So it was it was very cumbersome to jump back and forth. And so in '99, it all it was digital. We had a, a system in place where you were recording the feed. You had a digital you had a digital copy of that feed, and then you could just mark points on that feed and just jump to it with a touch screen. And that was and that that was ultimately what convinced everyone we could do this quickly, we could do this efficiently, that I could have, if there's eight replays, I could have access to them on my touch screen. I touch the screen and that replay pops up and I can manipulate that video and it, and it worked, you know, at the time it worked really well and, and, the, and the technology has only, has only gotten better since then. So even though it worked really well, were there any hiccups in those early days? I don't know if you can recall, you know, a certain game or a certain play or something, but were there ever any circumstances whether that's in the first week of the first year or throughout that season where something uh, technology-related went wrong um, and resulted in, in a wrong or a right call not being flipped or being flipped uh, the wrong direction. Yeah, you know, it was with any new system and any new technology, there were growing pains. And, and I remember we back then, the, the coaches didn't throw a red flag. They, they had a paging system. So the officials were a pager that the coach would access um, that he had a, an apparatus where the coach would just hit a button. And we had so many issues with those, with those pages because whether the coach was, was, was being forthright or not, it happened, you know, at least once every couple of games where the pager would go off, the referee would go to the coach and say, okay, coach, what are you challenging? And the coach said, I didn't hit the button. And so whether it was a frequency issue or the coach was just trying to stop the clock and, and uh, you know, it was very difficult for the referee in that situation to, to not take the coach at his word. So we had issues with the pagers. Um, we had issues with systems. It wasn't widespread, but again, with any new technology, um, there gonna, there's going to be troubleshooting involved. And uh, But for the most part, you know, we rarely ever had a complete system malfunction where we couldn't review a play. I think that may have happened once or twice those first couple of years. What happened, um, and maybe this is a question for later on when you became director of officials, not right when you were overseeing the replay system, but what happened when there you know, was a missed call? Um, so we'll say when you were director of officials and there was a missed call, replay was used or not, there was a missed call, and you and everybody in the office knew that. Like, What was the reaction? What was the mood? What was the, the process like 
when something like that is there like a report written when, when there's a poor call and, and everybody knows and the league office knows it how does that work yeah so the officials every crew gets an evaluation report so we have we'd have former supervi- former officials who are supervisors of um, in the department who are evaluating every play of every game and that crew gets an evaluation report and then we, we would be in the office and we would monitor games in the command center and you would see a play and uh, and ultimately if we decided that was a mistake we wouldn't we wouldn't put a report for internal internal personnel that listed every every mistake that we identified but if there was something significant that we knew was going to be we were either going to have to address it publicly then then we would put that on a tape share it with the commissioner share it get the public relations people involved and come up with a plan as to how we're going to address it publicly but that was something that that didn't happen very often but uh but the officials were were evaluated on every game that they worked and they would get that report and uh and we would you know use those use those uh instances where mistakes were made as, as teaching moments and try to address the issue and then and then hopefully uh make sure it didn't happen again so when you were director officials, what was a typical week like in that job? Like how many is that like an eighty-hour week? Run us through a normal in-season week when you were director of officials. Yeah, it's a it's a long, long week. So you start, you know, you you start on Sunday, and uh, and that so you have games, you know, that on the East Coast will kick off at one o'clock. You're there a couple of hours before, making sure checking in with every crew at the game site, making sure everything is um, working checking the systems, checking the communications equipment, and then uh, and then you're there through the end of the Sunday night game. If something happened significant, you, uh, you're you addressing that. There there were PR people in the room that, that we could address issues. With social media, it made it, it, made it a lot easier where instead of a, a press release, we could, we could tweet something and, and explain something via, via social media, which, which really helped out a lot. But if something happened in that Sunday night game, you might be there. If that game ends at uh, midnight or, or 1130 on the East Coast, you might be there for another hour or so talking to the coach or addressing something um, with the commissioner. And then and then Monday morning, you start up and, and you start getting those phone calls and, and reports from coaches and you start answering those coach those coaches questions. We had a we had a website that the coaches could submit up to ten questions per game, and uh, a lot of teams would do it that way. Other coaches would call, text, email, and, uh, and so Monday Monday Tuesday we really focused on that, and then and then Wednesday we would go through all the calls of every game as a group with our supervisory staff, and we would basically look at all the offensive holding calls and all the defensive pass interference calls, and then evaluate them. And then we would send that back to the crews. And then Thursday would be training tapes. We put together teaching tapes on different, in different areas. And then kind of Friday, you're wrapping things up, but then you're, you start thinking about the upcoming weekend's games and talking to coaches about um, concerns that they may have going into that game on Sunday or Monday, whenever it was. And, and then take a breath Friday night, Saturday, enjoy a little, a little downtime and then get going again on Sunday. So how many, plays were being submitted by coach i think you said a maximum of 10 was every single coach submitting 10 plays every week of the season no no it would vary some some teams would send some teams would use all 10 other teams would would send a couple some teams wouldn't send plays every week it it varied but we were we were probably looking at you know with a 16 game week we were probably looking at 
you know, anywhere between 175 to 200 plays. Um, and, uh, and so it was definitely, it, it was definitely uh, a lot, but it was important because that, that communication with the clubs, you know, they need to know if, if their defensive back was called for pass interference. They need to know if that was a correct call because if it wasn't, then they can go back to that, that DB and explain that his technique was legal and that, and that he doesn't have to address it. Or if it was a foul, that, that we need to address it. We need to make a correction. What percentage, I guess, ballpark wise of those, those plays that get submitted, um, do you find something that an official did wrong or that you would do differently in, in, in the same situation? It was probably, you know, if a team send in 10 plays and they were, and they were legitimate questions, then you, you would probably agree with, I'd say three to four of them, um, on average. And, and a lot of that though would be if they, if they looked at their opponent and they said, okay, the left guard held on this play. And it may be true, but, and I would agree, yeah, that is holding, but here's why it wasn't called. You know, that's the umpire's responsibility. The umpire was screened because the, the running back flashed in front of him and he didn't see the hole. So, so that's kind of the interaction, the communication that takes place on those, uh, you know, in that, in that area. But again, every, every coach that sent in plays and they were legitimate questions and it wasn't just, and a lot of the coaches, you know, they, most of them understood this wasn't just a, a, a venting session where you could just point out, Hey, they did, they missed this, they missed that. It was, legitimate question so they could go back to their player um, you, you definitely would agree with you know like I said three to four out of every ten and, uh, and that's kind of would be the average so I think you were done uh, being director of officials in 2016 if I'm right what was what was behind the decision uh, to leave how did that work is that just kind of the lifespan for for that type of position um, and, and what really made you decide to to do something different yeah it was you know I, I don't know what the lifespan is I know that um, I wasn't unhappy. I, I enjoyed what I did. Um, I, I felt I felt that the NFL treated me very well, and and I had made so many good relationships. But you know, I knew that I knew that eventually I, I wanted to transition into the broadcasting world at some point. And uh, but I didn't think it was going to be that early. I felt like I had a couple more seasons in me, and and I, some things I wanted to see through. But it was just an opportunity presented itself, and, and I and I just wasn't sure if that opportunity was gonna was gonna always be there, and uh, and I just you know I have I have young children, and it is a long it is a, a long work week during the football season, especially, and even in the off season, you're traveling and, and doing a lot of things, and I just felt like it it was the right time and the right opportunity, and uh, and it was just it wasn't anything that negative about the NFL it was just there were a lot of positives about about going to Fox Sports and and doing what I'm doing now and and uh you know it was a you know it was a hard decision but I but I think ultimately it was a it was a good decision does that type of job weigh on you a lot I know that there there are a lot of controversial calls that that it went right or wrong and I can't even imagine how much time you spend explaining it and justifying different things is that weigh on you you know if one of your officials makes a wrong call um how long does that sit in you is that just a daily thing or is that something that that weighs on you for years and years it it definitely weighs on you because you you know you you want you don't want a game to be decided by an officiating you know decision um especially officiating decision that is that is a mistake and that's just the reality everybody expects perfection but it's impossible the game the game is too fast the officials are, are excellent 
and and they're amazing at what they do, but nobody's perfect. And and it definitely would weigh on you. I remember I remember the the 2015 season during the regular season. There were two or three weeks where we had it just felt like we were you know a little bit snake bitten. We had uh, whether it was a Monday night or a Sunday night, we had some high profile mistakes, and it was about two three weeks in a row, and there was a lot of discussion about officiating. And that really starts to weigh on you. It starts to, you know, you, you want the officials to do well. You don't want officiating to be the story. And, and I remember, I remember getting a phone call out of the blue and I'll never forget it. It was, it was Bill Parcells who, who I had never met before. And he just, he just called me and, uh, and just gave me some words of encouragement and said, you know what? Officiating is hard. And, and uh, you know, here's here's some advice, and and I always I'll always remember that phone call because he just went out of his way when we were having a tough couple of weeks to just kind of give me some encouragement when he didn't didn't know me, didn't have to do that, and uh, and that always stuck at, stuck out for me. But it it definitely it definitely weighs on you. It's not a it's not an easy thing when uh, when people are talking about officiating and and you're ultimately responsible for it. You know, I'm not sure if, if you would be willing to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Is there a particular call? I know you said there were a couple of weeks in the 2015 season where you were snake bit a little bit. Is there a particular call or two that, that you still think about and that weighs on you even more um, as you go along in your life? Yeah, you know, the, the one call that, that I don't necessarily think about all that much, but people won't let me forget it, is the Des Bryant, the Des Bryant overturn in the in the playoff game against the Packers. And, uh, you know, that, that at the time under the rule, it, it was the correct call, but it was a significant call and it was a controversial call. And that's the thing about officiating is it, it could be correct by rule, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be controversial. So, you know, that, that's one that always seems to come up, but I don't, I don't dwell on that one. You know, for me, probably the one that, that, um, there were always plays, especially when we were involved in replay from the office, there were plays during the week I would go through and evaluate myself. And, and there were a handful of times where there were plays that I would have liked to have had back and make a different decision. You know, and one was a, was a play that for me, it stood out. It was a regular season game. Um, it was, a, I think it was the Bears and the Lions and it was Golden Tate and the, and the ruling on the field was a, was an incomplete pass or actually an interception in the end zone that, that he had controlled the ball, got hit near the goal line, the ball popped out and the bears intercepted it. And we actually reversed it to a touchdown saying that he had completed the catch. And that's one, you know, looking back afterward, um, that, uh, you know, that was not the correct decision. And, and, and that's one I would have liked to have back. So, you know, and those types of things impact the outcome of games. And that's one that I always kind of dwell on. Um, but again, it's not something, you don't, it's not something I, I, I think about constantly. You just, you know, you want to be, you want to be perfect, but it's impossible to do so. And so you just keep trying to get better and better. How often are you asked about the Des Bryant call? Is that a daily thing for you? <laughs> it's, well, what's funny, and, and I, and I, I appreciate it because I have fun with people on social media, but anytime, anytime I tweet about anything, there's always at least one person that will just tweet Des caught it. I mean, it could be completely unrelated to football. And so I appreciate that, that passion that Cowboy fans have. But, uh, you know, it, it, it comes up every once in a while. Like I said, it was a controversial play, but it wasn't, I was actually talking to Gene Steratore, who was the referee on the game. I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago and we, you know, we laughed about it, you know, saying, cause somebody, I guess, had brought it up to him and, 
we both during when it happened, neither one of us thought it was that difficult of a call according to the rule, but we both knew the ramifications. But that's the thing about officiating is, is you have to be able to make that, that tough call in that position. And it may not be popular and it may be controversial, but sometimes you just have to do that. Before you became director, I think it was right the year before, was was the referee lockout. Obviously, we had the film, Mary play and all of that. Um, I'm sure we could I'm sure we could do an entire podcast episode on just your feelings around the ref lockout. But what was the the feeling like in that officiating office during that time? It was it was definitely unlike anything that I had I had been exposed to, even because we had had a previous lockout in in the early 2000s um but that that was different this this was we had a group of officials that were really not not experienced or not as experienced as they needed to be and uh and they were out there working NFL games and it was definitely a challenge and and it was only it was only 3 weeks 3 regular season weeks but it was it was stressful i think for everyone and uh you know the first week went fairly well and I think that gave people um, some some hope that these this this staff of officials these these replacement officials could could handle it. But then you know week two and week three, and that's it. It was it was inevitable because the the NFL officials are the best in the world. They have the experience. They have the training. And what we learned from that lockout is that it's not it's not just calling fouls on the field. It's everything else that goes into administering an NFL game you have you have to manage TV which a lot of officials at the lower levels have, have not experienced you have to deal with you have to deal with coaches and players on a, on a much higher level and uh, and so it was definitely a stressful time but uh, you know I'm glad that it didn't last and everybody was able to come to an agreement and uh, and we moved on from it you said it was inevitable was it I don't know, like a pins and needles situation where everybody in the office is just watching these games and you hate to say it, but are you just, are you just waiting for these unqualified referees to mess up? You know, I, I think the people that understood officiating and the people that could see it, what was happening on a play by play basis understood that. I think they understood. And that's, you know, I, I said to myself, I said, it's only a matter of time because, and it's through no fault of these officials. They're just, you know, it's, it's like anything else. You, you play, you play basketball in an adult rec league and then we're going to, you're going to go, you're going to go play with the Lakers. You're, you're not going to do well. And, and so this was something that, that it was, you know, we always felt there was a, a group of us that felt it was going to be inevitable, but we were going to try to do the best we could to help them, teach them, train them, get them to where they needed to be. But uh, the game, it's too fast and it's, and it's, it's too difficult. All the other things, surrounding managing an NFL game for for people that that aren't experienced and that was that was part of the issue. So Dean, you're the executive producer of Her Turf. That's the the documentary for those of you who haven't heard or seen it. The documentary on the yeah. three female uh, football officials. I'm curious uh, in your conversation with female football officials, do they get treated differently by players and coaches on the field? Yeah, that's something we really, you know, we've been working with female officials and just and just trying to create opportunities for them and, and all officials from from all different you know all different backgrounds, uh, but they do they do a lot of the female officials that I talk to, um, most of them they just want to be they just want to officiate they don't want to be treated differently they don't and I think when you get to certainly at the NFL level I think Sarah Thomas who was the first female official I think she learned right away that the NFL coaches weren't going to treat her any differently. 
and uh and you know and if she if she messed up or whatever she was going to hear it i think you do talk to some female officials at the lower levels and 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 i don't know if it's treated differently necessarily in a bad way it's just there there's certain there's certain um you know whether however you're raised is how you speak to a man versus a woman and i mean that's just part of it and i think some female officials have experienced that but for the most part i think these these women officials they just want to be they just want to be seen as officials they don't want to stand out they just want to do their job and and i think we're getting there and, I, and and i'm hoping that we can get to a point where having a female official in the nfl or or in any major professional sport is not a it's not a story it's just it's just normal and i and i don't know when that's going to happen but i think it'll happen at some point Hey, last thing for you here, and I really appreciate all your time today. I'm curious, with pass interference becoming reviewable in the NFL, um, you know, where do you see replay going in the near future? Specifically, what what current non-reviewable plays do you think will become reviewable, whether that's next year, three, four years down the road? Do you see any of those changing? You know, I certainly could see, I could see some player safety rules being reviewable. We already have targeting at the college level. I think the NFL considered that before they passed this 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 rule that made pass interference reviewable, and I and I definitely could see whether it's hits on defenseless players or roughing the passer or something related to player safety becoming reviewable in in the next couple of seasons. I I, I wouldn't imagine something else uh, becoming reviewable before player safety fouls. I think that if there is going to be a next step, I think that's going to be it. Do you think making pass interference reviewable was the right decision? You know, I'm 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 going to wait to see how it all plays out. I I never I've never been a proponent of changing a rule because of one play, and I do think you know as significant and 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 impactful as that play was, you know I don't believe in changing rules because of one situation. I think we end up with bad rules because of that. Um, I I want to see how it how it's administered. You know, there are certainly these are big calls and they impact games, but um, there's a standard there's a standard on the field that officials use because they're they only they can only see a play in real time. They can't slow it down. They can't go frame by frame, and and so they officiate in a real time world. And now we're gonna we're gonna transition that to a to a world where we can freeze. And slow the video down and distort it and make it look different and that's that's what I worry about is a call that is not made on the field that was never intended to be made on the field could be created in replay because we have the ability to freeze it a split second before the ball arrives and see the defender's arm um, on the receiver's arm and I, and I don't know if that's a good thing I, I, I worry about that so we'll see how it's how it's going to be applied um, but I, I definitely have my concerns going into the season. All right, that's Dean Blandino. You can obviously see him on Fox breaking down NFL college football calls on Twitter at Dean Blandino. Hey, Dean, it was a real pleasure. I really appreciate the time and safe travels this week. You got it, Andrew. Thanks for having me.